Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to Dose Nation. I'm Jake, and of course, I'm your host, and of course, with me, as always, is founder of Dose Nation and co-host of the podcast, James Kent. James, how are you? I'm really liking that music. What, can you tell me what that is that sure. you're just listening to? So we're, um, I'll turn it up a little bit while I talk about it. Um, what we're listening to is a medieval Byzantine chant. The title of it is Communion, Praise the Lord from the Heavens. Um, it's used in the service of the Divine Liturgy of St. John of uh, Chrys- Chrysostom, I believe is how you pronounce his name. I cannot pronounce the uh, <laughs> the composer's name, but it's Maestor Iones. Kukozilis. Um Now, Byzantine. First of all, let's let's just make the distinction first. The, there there are two 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 really churches. There was a schism that took place, and there is the Eastern churches and the Western Latin Rite Church. So, what we were listening to comes out of that Eastern tradition, um, which the seat of that church is based in Constantinople, or it was Constantinople, present day Istanbul. Um, and, so it's Middle Eastern Orthodoxy um, or Eastern Orthodoxy. Yes, it is. East, it is Eastern Orthodoxy, um, and you know, of course, it has more of a Middle Eastern feel to it than Gregorian chant. Right, and I mean, of course, Byzant, uh, you know, the Byzantine Empire and especially Constantinople, the city itself, was basically a gateway between the Western world and the Middle Eastern world. Um, you know, during its time as the is is the most you know Europe's greatest and most impenetrable fortress, basically. Right, and what can you uh, date the era of when that was composed? Um, that I'm not, I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure of. Um, it, it is a medieval Byzantine chant, so it, it, it was probably composed between, uh, probably sometime between the year one thousand, maybe a little. But earlier. you found it. You found it on YouTube. Yeah, people I did. Can find yeah. it on YouTube, and people can find it on YouTube. Yeah, 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 they can. Um, but. Uh, what, what's what's really interesting is that uh, the the and a lot of people don't don't realize this about the Eastern Orthodox Church, but they had an established government just like the Papal States did for a long time. They were heavily integrated into the Byzantine Empire uh, until the fall of the city um, to Mehmed II in the uh, 1400s. So the, it's a it, it's a long-standing tradition. But what's also so interesting is that and you had showed me some of the Akaro chants as well, which come from South America. Right. Um, and a few of these others. And they all have a very interesting and similar sound to them, I think, to a certain extent. Right. Yeah. And this is what I wanted to talk about here. I wanted to talk about these um, what I call heroic songs or epic songs or epic poetry or ballads. I, it's, it's, I don't know if there's a really good word for them. They're like chants, but they're also musicals. So they're incantations. Um, they're 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 magical in a lot of ways because they really bring about a certain sacred space, a certain sacred headspace that you that you, you undeniably feel in your body when you listen to them. And they're crafted to be that way. It's not like they're they happen that way just accidentally. They're crafted through through trial and error to be just perfectly that way. And to give you a certain type of feeling uh, in 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 ceremony and so on, whether it be shamanic ceremony or some kind of eastern liturgy or even you know whatever it may be um, right and so these 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 epic songs uh these w- what would you call these these are sacred songs they are they I are guess. sacred songs um they're they're the songs of um of the spiritual mystics and the one that i'm playing right now is an ikaro 
um, song, which you sent me. I believe it's the uh, sh- uh, the Icaro for Peace. Is that true? I wish that our listeners could see the video that we're watching as well. If, if any of you want to look this up on YouTube, it's Amazon Experience. Shaman sings in a caro for peace. And again, you can hear both in the Byzantine and in this Ikaro chant or song that um, fluctuation of tone. Right. It's the microtonal fluctuation um, between pitches uh, that are held and sustained and waver back and forth. Uh, And that's the – it's really interesting when you hear that South American – it sounds like something that might have come from China or South Asia or Central Asia. It's very worldly. It's almost hard to pin to South America. It's it seems beyond its it's the shores of South America in some way. Um, whereas there's other there's other Icaros that you can pin almost completely to you know either a Spanish dialect. Um, Something like that is so otherworldly to my ears. It's it's like it originated, uh, you know, in another dimension almost. <laughs> now, <sighs> the the next one I'm going to play um, for us is actually a Gregorian chant, which is a Western chant. Um, and since we've heard a little bit of the Byzantine chant and we heard a little bit of the Akaro chant, let's take a look at this Gregorian chant and kind of compare the three. This is Kiri Eleison. Again, a very a very similar sound. Yeah, but you'll you'll notice this, that's in a that's in a, a major tone. It's not in a minor key, Plain like chant. the other two songs that we listen to. That's a very um, Gregorian chant, I believe, is plain chant. Um, is uh, I'm not sure if that right. If that's... It's very it's very harmonic. There's no there's no minor notes. There's no dissonance. It wants to stay, you know, nice and clean. It sounds cleaner than the other twos, when the other twos had a sense of, uh, I don't know, almost drama or suffering in them. The Gregorian chant is, all, is lifted up out of that a little bit, and I think it's just because of the, the harmonics that they use. Don't incorporate those microtones and those minor keys. But within those harmonics, it still produces a similar effect, I think, It does produce a very similar effect, but I don't think, they, I don't think there's... I think the Gregorian chant, it's very hard to find that sense of the um, the dark creeping through that you get in some of the other the other spiritual chants. 
You know what I mean? A Gregorian chant means it's it's almost like it's mathematically written to be to be pure, like a pure tone, a pure harmonic, kind of focused around a, a very ordered view of the universe as opposed to um, the Byzantine or the Icaros, which seem to be more rooted in um, almost raw emotional expression. Do you know? Do you, do you see what yeah, I'm saying? No, no, no. Yeah, I do understand what you're saying. Um, and I and there was one more chant that I want to play because this is where I think it gets really interesting. Is that when you listen to the dwarven chants of J.R.R. Tolkien's world, mm-hmm. it has a very interesting similarity between all of the th- all of these three things that we listen to. Um, but I think particularly Gregorian chant, right? And that's the the Hobbit theme from the from the movie that came out last year. Uh, it's the, uh, you know, I think it's probably one of the most powerful scenes in the movie when the dwarves gather around the fireplace. Well, I have never that. seen the movie, so don't 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 well, give too should, much away. You should play a little bit of the song. Yeah, and that's what I'm going to do. But I but I have not seen the movie. Yeah, that's just classic. I mean, it's timeless because they based it on these sacred chants. I mean, they didn't they didn't just pull that dwarf song out of nowhere. I think they knew what they were doing when they composed it. They, right. They said, look, you know, we're going to make this not only are we going to make it sound great, but we're going to make it resonate with actual human spiritual songs that are are present today or that are out there. Yeah, and it has a little bit of that Byzantine feel, and it has a little bit of that Gregorian feel, and it even has a little bit of that Icaro feel. I agree. I mean, I would definitely say it's more Western, especially Northern European, if anything. Yeah. Um, I mean, as far as what the actual sound is, but it does. But but I mean, again, since since all of these all of these songs, sacred songs, are so similar, I mean, really, you could you could take any of them and compare them because they're. I think that they all look to achieve the same goal. And it seems like, I mean, it feels like, and it's hard for me to demonstrate this uh, personally, but it feels like if you take these songs and you play them to anybody anywhere, anybody who sits down and gives them a good listen, no matter what their language is, they'll have an innate understanding of or feeling of what's going on in these songs. Right. Whether it be, you know, I mean, regardless of the actual context of the song. Well, right. I mean, they they can you can sense a spiritual component to mm-hmm. these compositions. So That's... let's ask another question then, since we're on the topic. You mm-hmm. you said that you can sense a certain spiritual composition. Now the question is: Is there an actual, whether it be a Caro or Southeast Asian or Gregorian or Byzantine or even you know Buddhist? It doesn't matter. Is there an actual spiritual power to these chants, or is it simply our mind making connections? And that's the other question, you know. 
Well, I think there is a spiritual power to music. Um, okay. That's 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 uplifting, uplifting to you know the human mood, and it makes people want to do things like dance. It makes people happy. Um, music has a magical, transformative power that way. Even people who are resistant to music, when when faced with the, the, the proper music, can't help but have an emotional response to bob their head or tap their foot or whatever it might be, as long as that music has some sort of re- re- resonance to them. What I'm talking about is this music that's not targeted to, say, a specific pop audience like the music that you hear on the radio is. I'm talking about music that's targeted to specifically create a spiritual experience. And you could say that that's what Gregorian chant is. It's like a mathematical formula that was written to create the most cathartic, transcendent, blissful, you know, heavenly experience. And the same would go for any chant across the world. You would hope so. I mean, some chants, I think, have diabolical purpose. Oh, I would, sure. I would suppose. I mean, there's chants that could be like like war chants or death chants or, you know, that you don't, you you know, I guess that would be more like heavy metal music. <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, that's what they play in the tanks when they go into battle. They, they fire up the heavy metal music. They fire up the, uh, you know, the fast drift guitars and heavy drum beats and the Metallica and the Motorhead. And, uh, right. They're not, they're not, uh, they're, they're, they're not, not listening to Gregorian chants. I mean, maybe they are, but that right. sounds like more like the helicopter pilot is listening to the Gregorian chants yeah, than right. maybe the guys on the ground. Yeah, right. And they're not, um, they're not popping in some Radiohead and going into battle, you know. Yeah, that's yeah. you know because because that music isn't conducive to that kind of environment. <laughs> I think as well. No, but so these these heroic chants, these epic songs, these mythical songs, they've been a part of human culture forever. I mean, and and um, one of the things that we're going to be talking about with Robert Tyndall and the conversation that we have with him is how in Western culture, the tradition was very strong in our past, almost our pagan, pre-Christian past, um, in the times of Homer and in the medieval times, of course, and we got the Gregorian chants. And then it was sort of lost to modern day uh, until, say, the time of Tolkien or the rebirth of this mythic imagination in modern times. We tried to contact Robert in Peru to talk to him about this a little bit, but unfortunately our connection was not very stable. Um, but we did manage to get uh, some questions for him. Uh, you, uh, I think at some point uh, you actually had your copy of Homer out on the table. Yeah, I did. I, I, I had my copy of the Odyssey out on the table. I was like, wait a minute, I, I, I know I have a copy of this. I need to get it. <laughs> because right. I needed to reference it. Um, because, I mean, the, the Odyssey is a great book. Um, the Has the Odyssey story. ever been put to music, to your knowledge? Do you know? That I'm not sure of. That I, that I don't know the answer to. That would be worth exploring. And if somebody hasn't already put it to music, somebody should. Um, I can just see it now, a Broadway musical based on the Odyssey. That would be interesting, I think. <laughs> but I don't know how they would, um, you know, how they would write it but so what are your what's your opinion on Gregorian chants being mixed with break beats what do you mean well like in trance music or like in pop music I think there was a there was a band back in the 90s that uh, mixed break beats and Gregorian chants together I didn't even know that that was a thing 
Yeah, I mean, it doesn't really get much better than that. Yeah, this is this is the first of me hearing this, to be honest with you. Well, that was a big thing um, when it when it came out. I still hear it rotated on adult contemporary stations every once in a while. And, uh, you know, it, it was bound to happen. There was a period of time in musical history where people were taking every genre of world music that they can find and blending it with a break beat and a big kick drum. Uh, and, you know, Gregorian chant went through its its cycle there. But, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Gregorian chant is still broken out at, um, you know, trance festivals every <laughs> once in a while. I mean, especially early in the morning when things are winding down, uh, it wouldn't be surprise me if that was going on in like the chill out tent or something like that. The chill out tent? Yeah. Haven't you ever been to a trance festival? <laughs> no, I have not. No. Yeah, the chill-out tent usually has like you know lots of pillows on the floor and low lights and um, you know uh, some sort of uh, moody environmental music playing in the background, which um, you know maybe pure ambient or maybe some just very mellow form of uh, um, drum and bass or mellow jazz or something like that, and people just sort of lie around and and trip out and come down and. You know, they're not, it's like where you go if you don't want to be energetic and dancing or you don't want to be chatty. You go to the chill out tent. I can't mean it's, come on, seriously, you must know about that. <laughs> I don't go to festivals. I don't go to, uh, I, I don't go to raves. I don't go to anything like that. So, well, yeah. So, I mean, I could imagine, um, you know, chant music like that being played in, um, a psychedelic festival setting and being received well. I don't think anybody would be turned off by that. I think if anything, they would be they would find it rather engaging. And and I don't see why not. Yeah, I mean it's 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 built to be very engaging and to uh, you know grab you and lift you up with, with those harmonies. Tetapoto, Peru, and we've been living here for around eight months now, uh, working at a center called Takawasi, which um, is a pretty innovative place, which uses the Vekitalista Amazon tradition to treat drug addiction. There's about 15 patients here in residence, a little bit more, and uh, there are ayahuasca ceremonies and uh, diets using uh, certain plants. Um, purges that happen, um, visiting shamans come through from all around the region. It's a pretty fascinating place to be, and it's got a mix of Western medicine, therapy, and uh, traditional indigenous approaches to healing, which is really quite fascinating. And you're down there in what capacity? Are you studying, or are you leading a group, or doing research? My wife, Susanna, is the one who's uh, more involved in the research. I lead a, a meditation group here. I've 
practiced in the Zen Buddhist tradition for many years, and they actually built a dojo here. There's a temple on these grounds, and so I lead the meditation practice. Let's talk about uh, the jaguar that roams the mind a little bit. Yeah, let's and, start there. Uh, when you wrote that, uh, how did you first come to South America? What were you doing in your life when you discovered ayahuasca and came to South America? I was just finishing up my master's degree in literature. I was studying old literature from Homer through the Middle Ages. And uh, I was kind of um, in a limbo in my life, living in the mountains and um, practicing Buddhist meditation. And when I drank ayahuasca, um, I felt as if... um, a kind of personal summons had called for um, a deep investigation into something as profoundly healing and powerful as this. Ayahuasca um, basically turned me inside out in one night. And um, it, at the same time, opened a huge doorway. And um, so strong was the attraction. I've I've been involved in spiritual practices pretty much my whole life, you know. Uh, I showed up at a Zen Buddhist temple when I was 19 years old and and moved in and practiced there for many years and and trained in Aikido and and, um, have worked very hard to understand the source of suffering and um, how to heal it. And when I drank ayahuasca, it was as if this whole missing piece fell into place. And having just completed my master's thesis on a medieval quest narrative, I thought, well, what I can do is combine my love for literature and my love for this new path that I've discovered of Vekitulista uh, shamanism and write an account that takes people into the rainforest and, and um, shows the unfolding of a pilgrim's encounter with uh, these shamanic traditions. And that's what happened. I ended up meeting my wife in the process, and and, uh, we now have a beautiful child. Here we are, living back in Peru again after many years of apprenticeship and some very intense work, both uh, with uh, the peyote tradition in the the Native American church and down here in the south with the ayahuasca tradition. So since you discovered ayahuasca, you have been on a quest to not only um, learn about these substances, but kind of master them in some sense. So you follow different traditions, study with different maestros, and become uh, adept in in these traditions. Is that what you would you say your calling is, more or less? No, no, no. <laughs> I, no, I'm not an adept. <laughs> no, no, that's not me. Um, I'm a writer. And um, uh, and I do have a spiritual practice. I, I see myself more as a bridge. Um, my and my life interests are helping facilitate people who are seeking healing or seeking deeper understanding of these ways. Um, and also, there's a huge poetic inspiration to be found in these traditional indigenous ways. It's... Um, it's something that we've lost from our daily experience. And, and yet what makes Tolkien, for example, so wonderful 
is uh, how much indigenous experience of the cosmos is there in his work. You know, um, when I first began dieting, the, uh, the palos down here, as they call them, the, the, the various medicinal trees, you would begin to encounter the consciousness of these plants and to get to know the character and, and capacities of them. And immediately, uh, Tolkien's ants began coming to me. And, and so, you know, in, in recent years, um, along with really pursuing the, the medicine path and, and genuinely apprenticing, my, my main endeavor has been to reclaim the lost indigenous experience of the West because I love the Western European tradition. And um, I, I think it's important to understand who our ancestors were and where we've come from. And hopefully we can get some orientation to where we're going from that. So that's what my most recent book is about, the, the shamanic odyssey, Homer Tolkien and the visionary experience. What have you found in, as far as in relation to Homer um, and the visionary experience? Well, the first thing is um, when you read the Odyssey after mm. having had some immersion in indigenous culture, shamanic practices, the, the culture of shamanism and the practice of it virtually leaps off the page and when you look at the way that Odysseus goes to negotiate with Circe, right, the witch, who is a, you know, who's a, a well, she's actually a pharmacaeus, and which is one translation that's possible for her, but she is a master of plants. That's any good quote and data is right, um, sure. and she's laid a spell on uh, Odysseus's men, but she's also a potentiaferon. She's, she's quite clearly a mistress of animals, which is a central figure in indigenous cosmologies pretty much worldwide, from the Tucano in, in Colombia to the, uh, the, the, green, um, the Eskimos in, in uh, Greenland. Now, um, you, you mentioned the story of where yeah. um, Circe turns, turns all of uh, Odysseus's men into animals and so on and so forth. Isn't there a plant, and I'm not sure if I, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, isn't there a plant that Odysseus has given by Hermes before he goes to face Circe's that makes them uh, or makes him sort of immune to her power. Um, Absolutely, there it's was called, a gift it's given from Moly. Yes, and and Odysseus says, "No, this is poison. I can't eat this." And he says, "Trust me." You know, Hermes says, "Trust me." You know, this is, you know, Hermes, the messenger of the gods, gives him this sacred thing to eat to uh, ward off the powers of evil. That's actually an interpretation. That's not what the text says exactly, though. What it says is dangerous for mortals to pluck, but not for the immortal gods. <laughs> so you essentially got it. Yeah. Um, the, the, I think the, the subtle point is that, um, that plants that are, are very powerful are negotiated by shamans with the assistance of um, the spiritual realm. And um, you need proper instruction and guidance to understand how it's how to use them, such as Hermes, well, the messenger of the gods. Yeah, sure. Hermes for me is uh, very much like the tobacco spirit in uh, the Native American church and in the Amazon tradition. Tobacco is a medicine down here, and so yeah, you do need guidance 
Uh, and certainly in the Odyssey, what you see are people with a, a very deep background of experience um, going back to the Paleolithic of inquests and animal transformation and um, um, how to use plants to uh, ward off spells or cast spells. An amazing familiarity with intoxic intoxication, song, uh, catharsis within song, all of these things which are characteristic of shamanic song and with the bardic song uh, as exemplified by Demodocus. So, so let me ask, let me ask a quick question. So, so let's uh, talk a little bit about because one of the one 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 of the main parts of uh, of the Odyssey is when Odysseus goes down to the kingdom of the dead, and he, he meets Ajax and so on and so forth. Is there any connection that you see there, um, between you know between that part of the story um, and the communion of shamans with? spirits of ancestors and so on? Of course. There's, um, it's written all over it. Um, I use um, uh, cognitive archaeologist David Lewis Williams' model of um, the transformation of consciousness called the uh, in intensified effective consciousness to explore that. Uh, the stages that Odysseus goes through the experience he has in his visionary um, quest, the whole thing is deeply characteristic of shamanic trance. And I, I remember telling the story to my Ashaninkin um, maestro, Juan Flores, and, and, and describing his having to make the journey to uh, basically the ends of the earth to find the entrance to physical locale where the entrance to Hades is and the where the three rivers have their confluence and everything, and how he slits the throat of the ram, and et cetera. And Flores just laughed and said, oh, that's because he didn't have ayahuasca. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, ayahuasca is the vine of the dead here, vine of the ancestors, vine of spirits. Uh, and Flores always would say to us, you know, when, when you work with ayahuasca, you're learning how to die. Because you die and you're reborn, and you die and you're reborn many times. Well, he was well, well. He entered into the kingdom of the dead, and then he was able to leave again as a mortal man, um, which is which he is. Doesn't actually he doesn't actually enter. If you look closely at the text, what he's doing is he's practicing a form of shamanism which is very similar to the kind practiced in the Amazon. He's summoning the spirits. He's sitting in front of the trench at the entryway. He spills the blood, which calls the spirits to come thronging out of Hades, and then he interviews them. Yeah, right, actually, yeah. Um, because in the yes. And it then he begins the transcorporal journeying toward the end. He um, leaves his body and begins to do sightseeing once his work is done, which is also what shamans do down here. If you read the last uh, passage of of um, of the uh, you know of that chapter of the Odyssey, he said, "With that, he turned back and he went to the house of death. But first, I held fast in place, hoping that others might still come. Shades of famous heroes, men who died in the old days, and ghosts of an even older age, I longed to see Theseus, you know, and all, and and so on and so forth. So it is it is exploring almost. It's just you know, 
Totally. So what he's done is really typical of what shamans do here. You know, first you do the healing work, or you get the information that you need. And he's done the interview with Teresius. He's also spoken with his mother. Right, yeah. He's passed on, and he meets there. And so he's taking care of the family business, and he's, he's taking care of this. And now he can go and um, explore the, the deeper layers of the spirit realm. And it's interesting because becomes a point where he begins, his journey begins to break up. And um, he's so far out there that he's suddenly, the throngs of spirits attack him. He loses the ability to order the coming of the spirits, which is uh, a really key shamanic capacity that Juan Flores has talked to us about. And um, when he does that, you see him... He doesn't run out of Hades. He's not there. He wrenches himself out of trance. He's been in front of the trench the whole time. It's very apparent. And he gets up and runs for the ship and tells everyone, let's get out of here. Because what he's afraid of is Persephone is going to send up a Medusa head from the depths of the unconscious and turn him into stone. Linda Virgen se taini, poderoso se taini man. Ora ya mo ya mo ini, is alive and represented in Western mythology and uh, especially pre-classical, pre-classical Western mythology. But there's a big gap there between, say, Homer and the reclamation of those myths with Tolkien. Tolkien's express goal was to reconstruct the pre-Christian um, mythology or storytelling repertoire, sacred lore of the Indo-European peoples, particularly of Europe. That was his mm-hmm. intention. For me, he, Tolkien sang for our time, um, which is what muses are supposed to do. And we have this wonderful account of an exchange between Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, the night that Tolkien converted Lewis to Christianity. He did it in a very interesting way. They were out for a walk, and Tolkien said to Lewis, look, you look at trees, he said, and call them trees, and probably you do not think twice about the word. You call a star a star and think nothing more of it. But you must remember that these words, tree, star, were, in their original forms, names given to these objects by people with very different views from yours. To you, a tree is simply a vegetable organism, and a star is simply a ball of inanimate matter moving along a mathematical course. But the first men to talk of trees and stars saw things very differently. To them, the world was alive with mythological beings. They saw the stars as living silver bursting into flame in answer to the eternal music. They saw the sky as a jeweled tent and the earth as a womb whence all living things had come. To them, the whole of creation was myth-woven and elf-patterned. And that's an essentially indigenous view, experience of the world that Tolkien's talking about here. And that is what he created for us to re-encounter in The Lord of the Rings. And in a lot of ways, that's what's missing with with modern 
reality or modern world is that that sense of attachment to mythology or a mythic tradition uh, everything's become very rational and uh, technological um, we don't Which see is things a myth in itself right you know, we don't see things we don't see things as alive or as a living system as much as we, we should or maybe we did in our past um, Mm-hmm. And I think, and I think that's where uh, people become fascinated with magic, because magic can only exist in those systems that have those mythological threads woven through them. When you when you remove those those mythological threads from the tapestry of your society, magic almost ceases to, to be. It all, it just vanishes. From Sebastius, we can um, really see what a mature practitioner looks like. And um, for me, the Odyssey is a kind of sacred text because it, it shows you the way back home again, passing through um, the other world. I, I think that a, a lot of what has been a benefit for me is to listen to my ancestors to really listen to my ancestors. And sometimes they speak in very strange voices. And in, in doing that, you somehow find the path beneath your feet. There's also a sense of, of reclaiming a kind of consciousness, you know, so not, you know, um, specific things within the text per se, but reclaiming a kind of consciousness, becoming aware of the fact that, um, with the Cartesian model, we've ended up in a narrow cul-de-sac of perception, which I think lies at the root of our present ecological crisis. When, when we divorced ourselves from a living cosmos, when we had that break with the indigenous mind, we, we set off on a pretty perilous journey. And uh, we've seen the consequences. We now have the capacity as everybody knows, to wipe out all life on this planet, which is a staggering concept, reality. So we're in danger. things I learned in, in my work in the Native American church is about uh, a sense of, of community that's deeper than just people living together, that it's a sense of tribe, of, of clan. And I actually think that um, there's a kind of summoning of clans that's going on right now in the world, and um, that these kinds of books can um, be guides for us to um, finding our life way that um, that is indigenous and postmodern enough to take us through this period and to have a healthy future for our children. Song is uh, 
in, in the shamanic tradition, doorway um, that um, makes presence in consciousness uh, elements of a, of a living cosmovision. I, I don't like the word mythology because mythology is looking at things from the outside. But when you say cosmovision, you're in something. Now you mm -hmm. are, you encounter Poseidon. Uh, you know something of, of its character. Uh, you've been there. And um, song is a vehicle for opening those doors of connection with the spiritual realm. You have to be trained, or the gift has to be given to you, or both, to uh, be able to, to sing in this kind of way. Pythagoras talked about like soul attunements. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we see it working for catharsis in, uh, um, in the Odyssey. Yeah, song is, is sort of like an information current that uh, is available to us uh, in certain states of consciousness. When you, when you have powerful stories like this, like these, these mythic tales, Homer chooses chooses poetry to to write them in. Um, Tolkien, when he's expressing, you know, he has these the all of the different tribes, the the races of Middle Earth have their songs that they go to um, to help translate the the, the 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 times that they're going through. Um, the indigenous peoples have songs that too. they go to, Which right? And it's memory. it's a it's a pre it's almost a preliterate vocal memory that they use to bind their their tribe Absolutely. together, and and this is one of the things that that Jake and I were talking about in terms of the Catholic Church. There's there's prayers that are written in a books, and then there's prayers that you speak aloud, and somehow speaking aloud the poetry that's on the page has more power than just looking at it on the page or seeing it on the page as words. Mm -hmm. There's something yeah. about the, the connection of putting those words or their sounds into being that makes something more manifest. Yeah, it presences uh, the eternal realm, uh, things that, that lie beyond our ordinary consciousness. and. There's a great example of that that I give in the book. Of, uh, there's a healer nearby here in Chisuta who in an ayahuasca ceremony had a woman from Scotland attending. And um, in the midst of it, uh, the Scottish woman suddenly became aware that there was a dragon in the room with her. She was caught up in a vision of a dragon, which was quite overwhelming. And um, her ancestral animal, right? Uh, of mm -hmm. people, and at the same time, this healer is beholding the same thing, and and uh, he has no idea what this is. Uh, but he simultaneously burst into an ikaro of the dragon at that moment and sang the presence of the dragon, and kind of modulated its power and um, um, translated it into song, and. When things get translated into song like that, they become part of our repertoire to, to get back there again. So they're mm -hmm. gifts. I see. So when you when you take something that's given to you in a vision or that presents itself in a visionary experience and you you turn it into a song, 
it becomes part of you. You you take ownership over it, almost. It well, becomes actually you, it comes becomes as a song. It comes as time. a song. Yes. Sure. You know, like the Shipibo shamans here, uh, in their tradition, they have to climb up a tree uh, in order to get to the boxes which are in the upper branches, which hold the healing songs that they need, but they're guarded by dragons. So it's 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 a very dangerous thing, but when they sing a song to heal someone, the, he, the hummingbird spirit comes along and helps actually weave the pattern of the song into the patient that is being sung over. And so it's so, kind of like um, song is the molecular structure of the cosmos. And that's, almost, that's also very, uh, that's, that archetype is very common in Western mythic tradition, the, the climbing the branches to retrieve the gift um, that's been placed there just out of reach. And only the hero can get up there to retrieve, and it's usually a gift from the gods or a message from the gods. So all of those Western archetypes are woven into the shamanic mythology. So where do you think the source of all of that comes from? Is there a, is there a central archetypal s- source that draws all these traditions together? I think it arises from um, symbiotic interaction with the life of the planet. I I, I think that if uh, if you experience the, the permeability of indigenous consciousness, um, we're all living on the same earth together, and uh, we all have the same neurological hardwiring, we're all of the same species, uh, it should not be too surprising that we find mastered animal figures, for example, all around the world. And you could look at the Paleolithic caves of Europe as uh, temples to the mastered animals. The, um, yeah, these, these things are, are just, uh, they just strike me not as archetypal, actually, but as um, more like arising from symbiosis with ecosystem, with, uh, with a, a wider, meaningful cosmos. We managed to get a few minutes out of him, even though we had some technical difficulties establishing the call. And I think it went well, even though we were just getting going there. Uh, we wanted to cover more topics with him, obviously, um, about Icaros. But we did talk a little bit about epic poems and uh, the heroic journey and his personal quest. And you can always look for his books on Amazon.com. There's the uh, Jaguar that roams the mind and the Shamanic Odyssey. And we'll have links to those up at DoseNation.com. And Jake, what did you think of the interview? Fantastic, as always. Very interesting and uh, compelling. 
Yeah, hopefully we'll be able to get him back. Um, where he is in Peru, it's a little difficult to get a hold of him. So uh, hopefully when he when he gets back to a, a stable landline somewhere, we can get a better interview with him. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. I'm your host, Jake, and, of course, founder of Dose Nation, James Kent, is uh, with me, as always. Remember to check us out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Dose Nation. And uh, you can find us online at www.dosenation.com. All the podcasts are up there. So make sure yeah, And you can out. find the podcast in iTunes now. You can just search for Dose Nation, and it'll be there. And if you want to pick up our feed anywhere else, you can just go to our webpage, dosenation.com, and uh, any one of the podcasts there will have a link to the iTunes feed or the RSS feed. So make sure you check that out. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you next Saturday. uh, We'll be back next week. Yep, we'll see you next Saturday, 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time uh, with Alexandre Tanus, and we'll be discussing Byzantine chants and uh, microtonal scales more. More on uh, sacred music. Yeah, more on sacred music. Ethnomusicology with Alexandre Tanus. Yep, so make sure you join us next week, the 9th, uh, at 5 p.m. Eastern on Sepia Radio. Thanks again, and have a great evening, everybody.